No collusion, no obstruction. They'll say anything to be able to win this. I mean, this is time and time again, lie after lie. It's disgusting. It's so phony. Welcome to Primary Concerns. I'm your host, Brian Boitler, senior editor at The New Republic. The Trump campaign's efforts to collude with the Russian government against Hillary Clinton have now been established. Donald Trump's son, Don Jr., produced emails on Tuesday that corroborate a meeting last June where he and the campaign's top leadership sought compromising information about Clinton that was sourced to the Russian government. Trump and his allies have been caught in a full year's worth of lies. Republican congressional leaders have been caught covering up a conspiracy. The question now is what anti-Trump forces can do to make accountability more likely. Greg Sargent, author of the Washington Post's Plumline blog, joined me by phone to discuss. Hey, Greg, how's it going? Good. How are you, Brian? I'm good. Um, I know you're joining me from New Jersey. Many people are saying uh, that you decamped to New Jersey to join the Christie administration. Uh, <laughs> I'm not saying I find that credible, but many people are saying it. Well, if many people are saying it, it's probably true. <laughs> Exclusive to Primary Concerns, uh, liberal blogger uh, Greg Sargent of The Washington Post is advising uh, the Christie administration. You're doing a bang-up job uh, considering where his approval ratings are. Well, I was the one who told him to go sit on the beach. So. <laughs> um, all right. Normally we do like a, a an intro uh, where I ask the guests to uh, – you know, give a little bit of background about themselves. But A, we've had Greg on before, so this is his return appearance. And B, we're recording amidst uh, maybe the biggest news day uh, since President Trump took office. Um, so a couple hours before we started recording, Adam Goldman of The New York Times, who's co-written a lot of these uh, recent stories establishing proof of collusion between the Trump campaign and elements in the Russian government, uh, tweeted, Quote, I am still reporting. And that's exactly what he tweeted a few hours before he and the Times kind of forced Donald Trump Jr. to release the text of emails which demonstrate uh, excitement within the campaign at the prospect of colluding uh, with Russia. So this episode may be obsolete at any moment, um, but I did kind of just want to dive right in. And uh, in case you know listeners weren't paying super close attention, this began with the Times story a couple of days before we started recording about uh, Donald Trump Jr. scheduling a meeting for himself, Jared Kushner and campaign chair Paul Manafort uh, with a Russian lawyer at Trump Tower. And this was in June of last year. So over the course of two days, Trump Jr.'s story has evolved from this red herring about how this Russian lawyer wanted to talk about a, a do- Russian adoption. Uh, to then admitting that he accepted the meeting because uh, he was expecting dirt on Hillary Clinton, to finally um, revealing that he accepted the meeting under the explicit pretense that it would be a conduit for compromising info about Clinton coming from the Kremlin to the Trump campaign. And this was all not this is not just, you know, uh, my gloss on it. There's emails that Trump Jr. himself tweeted that show this to be the case. Um, That's right. And also, I mean, if you look at you can look at the evolution of uh, Trump Jr.'s uh, statements, and they show this changing story in real time, and it's really kind of extraordinary. When you look at the statements side by side, the first statement literally refuses to disclose the actual reason for the meeting. Yeah. Right? And the second one grudgingly uh, discloses the, re- the reason for the meeting. But even that email is highly, uh, even that statement is highly misleading in the sense that it very carefully went out of its way to say that only that he didn't know this woman's name. And 
nothing about whether he knew her general identity. And by the way, Kellyanne Conway on ABC yesterday morning repeated almost that phrase verbatim that she, that uh, he didn't know her name. So they already knew they were in some real trouble at that point. Yeah, I mean, if we want to draw the lens back a little further, um, you know, Trump Jr. is one of many, 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 many people uh, in the Trump orbit who have been adamant that, you know, the the Trump collusion story is uh, is fake news. It's a it's a conspiracy theory by Democrats as an ex- to, to like excuse why they lost the election. It didn't happen. Just lying about it for years. So it's not, it, you know, the 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 starting point for Trump Jr.'s deception. And now we can like confirm that that also includes Jared Kushner uh, and Paul Manafort, um, you know, they've been fanning out to to dispute collusion stories for a year, um, contact with Russian stories for a year. And uh, and at least those three knew that the the, the cover stories were lies. So this is not just a story that uh, that began when when The New York Times started probing this this meeting from June of last year. It goes back to comments that that these people have been making on the record, on background of people, et cetera, et cetera, for for a very long time now. Yeah, I mean, they've been lying for for months and months and months about this. And and now it's just established beyond any doubt that that the Trump campaign's very top people were eager to collude with with Russia Uh, on the understanding, on the explicit understanding that that, uh, the Russian government was going to be furnishing information that would damage Hillary Clinton. Right. I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I more or less wrote this in, in my Tuesday article that um, I, we're basically past the point of questioning whether collusion occurred. We're, we're at the point of asking what was the extent of it and what were the terms? You know, um, it's not clear that Russian lawyer whose name I'm not going to try to pronounce because I've, I've I've never right. yeah, uh, furnished anything at that meeting. Um, and it's not clear whether they came to any kind of understanding about what would happen going forward. Like what would the people giving them the information about Hillary Clinton ex- expect in return? Although it sounds very much like she did cite this sanctions related Russian adoption law as a kind of concrete policy thing that she was particularly concerned about. So you can you can sort of frame that as as maybe like their ask this is something that matters to us we can get you dirt on Hillary Clinton but you know in the in the days after that you had Julian Assange saying that he had uh, acquired leaks pertaining to Hillary Clinton and um and you know everything else that happened in the the campaign is basically a matter of public record so you have both sides right you have them saying they want information you have the information coming out and so we don't know how much of this was kind of uh uh, you know how much of a heads up people in the campaign got. Roger Stone seems to have had a heads up on 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 certain things. Other people may have as well. We don't know what the people who were providing that information were expecting in return, uh, and how involved people in the campaign were beyond what we know for sure are Trump Jr., Kushner, and Manafort. Um, but that's crazy. I mean, that's like this is in my mind, game, set, match, right? Like more will likely come out and we'll get a, f- a clearer picture of how deeply entwined these two factions were. But even if the story stopped here, right, like this issue of secret collusion is the bar that Donald Trump himself has set for real wrongdoing. 
So now, you know, now that it's kind of demonstrated that, okay, well, there was secret collusion, um, you know, I, by his own standards, that means that, like, the most damning possible truth has been revealed, no? Yeah, I mean, and I think to, to your earlier point about pulling the lens back, I think we can pull it back even further, right? We can, we can sort of, you know, define the term collusion a little more loosely and, and refer in this, in the, in the context of the current revelations, we can refer back to the fact that, you know, for, for weeks and weeks, information was coming out that had been provided via Russian hacking. And the Trump campaign and, and top Republicans were trafficking in it regularly. Um, now, I, I think there are legitimate questions about whether, in some sense, it's okay to use information that's been injected into the public domain. Um, you know, the press was covering this stuff, and I think probably legitimately so, although there's a good argument to be had over whether, whether you know, that too. But the bottom line is that, very broadly speaking, um, Russian hacking was churning out a bunch of information that might not have been churned out otherwise, and, and Republicans such as Sean Spicer, who was then at the RNC, and the Trump campaign were, were you know, gleefully citing it regularly. So the collusion really goes beyond the sort of place where, as you mentioned, Trump has set the bar for himself to something really much broader and, and pretty troubling when the whole pattern is established. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a level of complicity nearly everywhere in the party, right? Like uh, a month ago, the Wall Street Journal had a story about this um, political consultant down in Florida who just outright asked Guccifer 2.0, the you know Russian cutout uh, about obtaining hacked emails and was sent a, a treasure trove of them, which he turned around and used to political ends. And and more recently, also the Wall Street Journal had a story about Peter Smith, the this like longtime Republican opposition research guy, like big into the Clinton muck era in in the mid '90s, basically advertising to to anybody with the right technical expertise that he was you know, trying to get Hillary Clinton's missing emails from Russian hackers, if need be, um, and to use, you know, for political ends to damage her. And at the same time, you know, uh, party apparatus, you know, the NRCC, et cetera, were were using the fruits of all this hacking in their own campaigns for re-election, right? And if you take it a level higher up, we know that Paul Ryan and the House... Republican leadership were aware in some sense that Russia had uh, a dog in, in, in the fight in the election uh, and that they were supporting Trump because, you know, there was a, a, a secretly recorded conversation among Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy and uh, and, and the other leaders where they kind of laughed about it, where they said, you know, we, we shouldn't talk about this, but but this is probably what's going on. And we, right. know, and we know that Mitch McConnell, whatever he suspected about what was actually happening in private meetings with Trump figures and, and Kremlin figures, that he he was going to politicize any effort by the Obama administration to send out a warning like, hey, uh, the, you know, the, the Russian government is trying to tip the election to Donald Trump with with propaganda and uh, stolen emails. So, you know, the, the I guess the the closer and closer you get to Republican officialdom in Washington, you know, the, the less crooked it looks maybe, but they, there's definitely like a element of complicity that extends everywhere within right. the GOP. 
and, and I think I think maybe you know the point can be made even even more forcefully on on Mitch McConnell and, and Paul Ryan because recall that there was a special session set up for leading members of Congress in which uh, very senior members of the Obama administration and I assume intelligence officials briefed these congressional Republicans and uh, Democrats asked them to show a united front on this to the public and asked them to go to the public and essentially sound the alarm about what was happening. And it's in that context that McConnell refused along the lines that you, you yes. brought up earlier, which is really just essentially saying, you know, we are not going to show a united, nonpartisan front against a foreign effort to sabotage American democracy. Right. I mean, and, it, it, the, uh, the, the, uh, my recollection of the reporting, and I don't have it right in front of me, is that is that John Brennan, who was then the CIA director, like with his hair on fire, went to every member of the Gang of Eight in Congress, the Speaker, the Minority Leader of the House, the uh, um, Senate Majority Leader, Senate Minority Leader, and the leaders of the intelligence committees and said, this is really bad. This is what we see happening. It's like... Uh, it's like quite clear that um, uh, Russians and are, are working to elect Trump, and that the, you know Trump might be cooperating with them. And um, and then at the meeting that you're talking about, which I believe occurred in September, you know, it, it wasn't like Obama sent over uh, Dennis McDonough, his chief of staff, or or uh, you know whoever his top political advisor at the at the moment was, or Josh Earnest or something like that. It was Jim Comey, the director of the FBI. Lisa Monaco, his uh, uh, Obama's um, uh, counterterrorism and homeland security advisor, and I think it was Jay Johnson to the the uh, homeland security secretary. So these are pretty non political people. Comey, most importantly, is like a you know in his pre FBI career was a Republican. So it was in an even more airtight environment that that McConnell decided that he was going to politicize this. It was not, you know, it was not Obama who was out there trying to alert Congress to this himself because he wanted Hillary Clinton to be president. It was the leaders of the intelligence community acting in, you know, uh, in the interests of, of the country. And speaking of the intelligence community's warnings, one thing that, that I keep trying to stress and, and I wish got a little more traction is, is that they are saying unequivocally, the intelligence community is, is highly united behind the idea that Russia's going to do it again in upcoming elections. In fact, James Comey testified extremely forcefully to this point, saying they'll be back. Um, and now the Trump administration is apparently, you know, not doing very much to prepare for this. And at a time when state officials are essentially also now coming to the Trump administration with their hair on fire, asking for guidance. So, yeah, I mean, I I don't have tremendous visibility into what the actual departments of the government are doing. Like, what's the FBI doing? What is the the Department of Homeland Security doing um, to try to uh, shore up our systems ahead of the next election? And it's possible that there's some kind of almost automatic process underway that that Trump you know, maybe he doesn't care about, but he's not stopping. As far as I know, I don't know. Um, but I do know that he has tried to remove every disincentive that Obama put in place uh, to prevent the next round of collusion, right? He, he, he wants to return these um, diplomatic facilities where, where Russians house spies, basically. Um, Obama confiscated them, and Trump wants to give them back. He wants to remove sanctions that Obama imposed. And though he can't 
actually do that. He wants to weaken congressional efforts to codify the uh, the the sanctions. So, it, like you know, in a sense, everything he's doing is pointing to the fact not just that to whatever extent he cooperated with Russian intelligence during the election, he's sending every signal to Russian intelligence now that he would welcome a repeat performance. Yes, in fact, he's saying it almost pretty explicitly when he says, let's put this all behind us, which right. he said just the other day. Right. I mean, that's essentially an open invitation to, 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 to Putin to do it again. Right. I know it's easy to get a little fatalistic about this, um, and it, it it's like it's like a it's like a you know a, a, an analytical point that savvy people kind of turn to to kind of shrug this all off. But it's true in some sense that we're all, we're all going to pull our hair out about this for days, and yet as long as Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell decide to do nothing about it, you know things will quiet down. There will be other, you know new news will happen. Um, we'll become distracted from what we've learned in the last two days, and things will quiet down. The bar for outrage will have been raised. And, you know, the, we'll have to wait for an even bigger bombshell to ask the question again, like, what are we going to do about this? Um, do you see any points of leverage that Democrats have or that anti-Trump forces have in general to, to press the issue further? Well, unfortunately, not really. But I, I guess I would say that putting that aside, you would think that the, the press corps would be focused very heavily on scrutinizing the response of congressional Republicans to the very fact that this could happen again. I mean, I would think that Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and, and Richard Burr and, and so forth would be asked to comment on the fact that state officials are now saying that the Trump administration isn't doing enough to protect them yeah. uh, against future Russian hacking. And this includes Republican secretaries of state, as reported by ABC News. So... I just sort of feel as if there's going to be a bit of a snowball effect here where little by little the, the, the press scrutiny of this will just intensify to the point where it's going to get harder and harder for nothing for nothing to be done. Yeah, and especially in a context where, like, Trump is uh, convening this, uh, this fraudulent v- voting commission, uh, you know, it's like just a crock of a bunch of voter suppression experts, basically, to to find excuses to purge voting rolls in states, right? Like, this is like the big thing about our elections that the Trump administration is actually putting effort into doing. And, you know, Congress isn't going to stop that because Republicans are all aboard uh, the voter suppression train. But um, in an environment where the press is trying to get accountability for actual election integrity questions and not fictional ones, to have uh, the Trump administration on the one hand and, and complicit members of Congress on the other uh, wasting all this time and money on um, on a quote unquote voter fraud commission is I, I think it, um, you know, doesn't have to make you mad or anything as a member of the press, but it it, it, it does give you a, a point of contrast like 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 the, the preference is revealed if if Trump really cared about protecting the integrity of the uh, election, he would be focusing on the real issue that has been established and not the fake one, right? Right, and I think that that's actually, you know, people like you and I have spent years tearing our, our hair out about the fact that the press just often doesn't seem willing to really be straightforward with, with the American people about what's happened to today's Republican Party. It seems to me that vote fraud is one issue where a lot of, you know, reporters and opinion makers and so forth really 
understand just how fraudulent the Republican position really is and how destructive it is and how mendacious it is. And so I think that point of contrast helps there, too, because it sort of underscores once again, like, the, the sort of the, the saturation of bad faith among Republicans on some of these issues. And that, that's got to help, I think. Yeah, it's just it's it's so inherently complicated. Like a lot of these problems, I feel like they stem from the fact that there is a strong, strong, strong anti-small D Democratic uh, element in the Republican Party, right? Like you see it in in the move towards voter suppression. You see it in the move towards conservative judicial interpretations are increasingly anti-democratic. Um, you see it in uh, the politics of abortion. You see it in in all kinds of things where, you know, the ideas like majoritarianism and 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 uh, representative democracy are, are like not really actually very popular with the constituent groups that make up the GOP. And it's, you know, when, when, when as members of the press corps, you've, you're supposed to be covering the two parties in a democratic system, you know, when one of those parties has lost its commitment to democratic ideals, small d democratic ideals, um, it's very hard, I feel like, to to cover like to explicate that to the public um both in terms of you know if if you feel like you have some need to maintain curry access with both parties but also because it just seems like the system has gotten so scrambled that it doesn't make any sense like how how are you covering democratic institutions when one party is trying to subvert them everywhere right and also you know the the, the manner in which trump has gone about this also you know i think helps to underscore just how how kind of deep the rot of that faith runs here. I mean, you know, the claim, the the regular claim that that millions voted illegally illegally in the election, and and that's why Trump uh, secretly won the popular vote, is something that just is so colossally absurd and just so deeply, you know, destructive in terms rhetorically that I think a lot of reporters and opinion makers who might be kind of inclined to a kind of both sidesism kind of see that that really rips the mask off of this kind of Republican voter suppression lie in, in a new way. And that, I think, helps contribute to the sort of larger acknowledgement that you're talking about here, um, that Republicans really are in some very deep and fundamental way um, hostile to, to, to basic Democratic values. Yeah. I mean, I, that might be a bit of an overstatement, I, I but mean, not much of one. I mean, like, you know, it's not that the party has no no connection or whatever to or, or no responsiveness to Democratic pressures. Right. They're all up. They all face election. But they spend a lot of time trying to, you know, uh, cabin the electorate uh, and shape it in ways that uh, affect them. So or or ways that benefit them, I should say. Um, so, you know, there there are still channels by which. You know, they respond to and presumably even respect democratic processes. But it's striking how particularly this contrast between how they're responding to uh, Russian interference versus how they respond to essentially fictitious voter fraud, that that their real concerns are not with making sure that elections are fair, which kind of tells the whole story. Um, I have come up with one thought about how it is that whether it's Democrats or whoever, can can try to get Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, members of the Republican Party taking a, a, a firmer hand 
in this issue. What I've come up with is that like over the past several weeks, we've seen right wing talking points evolve from there was no collusion to there's no evidence of collusion to collusion wouldn't be so bad if it happened to anyone would have done it. And we were just awesome enough to get to the collusion conspiracy first. Right. Um, so you, like you see that like in right wing media, there's a move afoot to to try to normalize this or, or, or paper it over. Um, and I wouldn't be shocked to hear Paul Ryan grab onto something similar. Like in the past, he excused Trump's uh, conduct, you know, by saying uh, they're just new at this. He's just new at this. He's not a career politician. Um, you know, we, we don't know if any crimes were committed. That's a matter for Bob Mueller to investigate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think it might be more effective to pin these people down less on the underlying conduct and more on the what we were talking the, the extraordinary deception campaign that Trump and his campaign have been undertaking for seemingly a year. Right. Like the president and his closest advisors have been lying to the American people about what they knew about Russian involvement in the election, who was seeking to uh, subvert the election and whether they were colluding for months and months and months and months. And, uh, you know, he should face some kind of censure from the Congress for that. He li- he he didn't just lie to to the you know, he he kind of suborned Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell into running interference for him around a point of contention. Did Russia interfere? Were they colluding with Trump that he knew like he knew the truth of the matter and he let them uh, kind of engage in this cover up on his behalf anyway? Yeah, and I mean, I think that there might be another opening as well on the tax return stuff, right? You know, a lot of Republicans during the campaign were willing to criticize Trump for not releasing his returns, and then that, of course, immediately evaporated once he became president, and he started, you know, running all these conflicts of interest and and emoluments clause violations. But don't you think that there might be a way that Democrats could kind of renew the pressure on Republicans to in Congress to act? try to pry the tax returns loose. I could. I mean, I don't know procedurally whether this is feasible or not, but something like a return to a discharge petition or anything like that, it just seems like now that we know that act that the, the Trump campaign was was fully willing to pursue collusion with, with the Russian government, you'd think that the returns become a more urgent issue, don't you think? I'd like to think so. I mean, you know... The I suppose it's possible that you had a you have a Senate Intelligence uh, Committee investigation that was kind of stalled out. It seemed like, and a House Intelligence Committee investigation that seems like outright corrupted. Even though you know uh, Adam Schiff is doing a great job with the hand he's been dealt, but he just doesn't have uh, you know above board partners. Um, they could start subpoenaing. They could start um, asking for a broader range of documents. And I know that there is like a, you know, like a technical legal process by which the um, the congressional tax writing committees can obtain uh, individual tax returns. Um, but I, you know, I, I feel like this is a this is a issue that will be, you know, if there's real movement on it, it's going to come from the top and filter down. Right. It's not going to come from Orrin Hatch going rogue or something like that, or Kevin Brady, the Ways and Means Committee chairman going rogue and, and you know, b- becoming serious about investigating Trump. And uh, it, it, 
it, it's only going to happen, I feel like, just like with Watergate, when the leaders of the party that, the, you know, that controls the presidency go to the president or something and say, hey, uh, we got to turn a corner on this because because we can't defend it anymore. And whether that means impeachment or uh, stepped up investigation or uh, votes to censure, whatever, um, that's going to come from from the leaders. That's my sense. I don't know. Right. And I think that that, if anything, that sort of, you know, is a reminder of, of why there's such great cause for real pessimism here. As long as Republican leaders feel in some basic way that their party's fortunes in 2018 are tied to Trump, then I don't think we're going to get a lot of movement. Yeah. I mean, that's why that's what I like about this approach in some sense, about focusing on the, the, the lying rather than what's in his tax returns what was the collusion about? What did they promise Russia in return for all this dirt on Clinton or whatever? Um, you know, if you probe Ryan and McConnell with questions about they can't defend the comments that Trump, Mike Pence, Kellyanne Conway, uh, Paul Manafort, all these people made, lie, you know, lying about what Russian involvement was, what their involvement was, et cetera. They, they can't defend that. And, and it implicates them in some way because you know, they covered for Trump for for all this time when he knew, you know, when when it was in email, like when there was an email saying this is like confidential, top secret uh, information from the Russian government that we're trying to get to you through intermediary in through through intermediaries, like forcing them to grapple with the fact that they have been helping to cover that up, I think, is one way to dislodge them from this because it it suddenly they can't hide behind that's the white house we're focusing on our own stuff it's like why did you put yourself on the line to downplay this when you didn't know what the extent of it was and now it turns out that it was about as bad as it could possibly be yeah for sure and i think there are actually two two um sort of channels that that on, on which that could play out right what we talked first what we talked about before which is this this notion that that senior Republicans were briefed on, on the Russian efforts to sabotage the election and, and did nothing for partisan reasons. I think that could actually get more scrutiny in days ahead, right? I mean, we don't really know. There might have been more briefings. There might have been more pressure, private pressure on Republicans to act that they rebuffed. That sort of thing could come out. And then I really wonder whether we might, and this is really just speculation on my part, but I wonder whether we might hear down the line or soon enough that that senior Republicans were told more incriminating information than merely Russian Russians are just trying to sabotage the election. Maybe in some form or other, it was communicated to senior Republicans that there had been some, you know, real signs of active collusion, and they did nothing at that point. I think that really would increase the pressure. Too. Yeah, I think my understanding, and I'm operating from memory again, is that uh, Brennan definitely briefed Harry Reid, who's part of the Gang of Eight, about the, you know, seeming connection between the subversion campaign and the Trump campaign, right? That that, that there was some nexus there. Um, and, and this helps explain, Harry Reid wrote that letter uh, in, in late October, early November to Jim Comey, like uh, ripping him a new one for, for divulging all this information about Hillary Clinton when he had all this highly incriminating information about Trump. So, but if but if Brennan is briefing Harry Reid in a one-on-one capacity, I think it stands to reason that he'd have briefed other members of the Gang of Eight about the same thing. And this was like August, I think. So, 
yeah. uh, plenty of time to get on board with it. And 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 then you have a month later, Mitch McConnell saying, "Nope, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna stand for you guys trying to disrupt the collusion or whatever, disrupt the." Yeah, the... absolutely. I, I think there's just there's there's a there's a lot more room for for serious scrutiny of of what intelligence had 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 figured out early on terms of not just Russian sabotage, but also possible collusion, what had been told to Republican leaders. And again, this is all speculative, but there's a lot to fill in here. And, and, you know, the the void would seem to suggest that there could be some pretty ugly stuff that we don't know yet. I mean, one thing that uh, this this would, you know, kind of cut against how Democrats conceive of themselves, how they conduct themselves. Um, But you know, to the extent that Democrats witnessed this in, you know, in in the skiffs in the in in Congress and the secure rooms in Congress, where where in you know uh, intelligence oversight uh, members get briefed by people like the FBI director and the CIA director and so on, you know, if 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 Democrats were there when Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan or whomever else were playing up their resistance to. The idea that Russia did this, and that and that and that the U.S. government should have a united front against it, they could they could give out more information. Like they, you know, ideally they'd put their names to it, but they could just they could just leak more stories, essentially saying, you know, there was clear, uh, you know, the, like the, the the leaders in the intelligence community did not mince words about this, and in that context, Paul Ryan said X, Mitch McConnell said Y, um, and just kind of rat them out, you know. Why not? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd, I'd really like to know whether whether that sort of conversation happened. I, I, I suspect that that today's revelations are going to maybe pry a little more of that loose. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would hope that if it doesn't spill out of Republicans on their own, that the Democrats would do something to try to kind of lever it out of them because, you know— I, I, Obviously, what Mitch McConnell wants to do is say nothing. Um, he wants, like, you know, the White House, you know, Donald Trump can tweet about something else, distract the media from this. Four days from now, we're on to some, some new outrage, and then he can get back to work trying to take health care away from 22 million people. Right. Um, and if, and, if, and if, if, that's the, if that's the kind of strategy they, they get behind at this point to try to bury this, this you know, proof of collusion news, then I think that it might be time for Democrats to start violating some of the customs that, you know, the, uh, you know, govern intra-congressional relationships. And, you know, they can't obviously divulge classified information, but they can divulge non-classified information, even if it was uh, relayed to them inside of a skiff. Uh, like that, that breaches some kind of protocol, but not any law. Or it's just you know, it's just it's just fighting fire with fire at that point. Right, and I, I really wonder whether Democratic skittishness is, is a part of this. I've picked up some signals from Democrats in, in recent weeks that that sort of indicate that they have this idea, which I think is 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 wrongheaded, that to talk about what happened in 2016 is backward looking, and. You know, I, I guess I worry, although this is really just based on more of a sort of atmospheric sense than anything too specific, but I worry that they're afraid to go hard at this stuff because they think that it's going to look like sore loserdom. 
Yeah. And that if that's what's going on, then that would be really too bad. Because, again, this is really about the integrity of our elections going forward, too. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't have to be backward-looking. The intelligence community has told us in their, in their January report, they made it explicit that this is now the new normal. And James Comey said in his congressional testimony that, that Russia was going to try to sabotage upcoming elections. And so this doesn't have to be backward-looking. Democrats should really, if, if they're being held back by skittishness, they really should step up and, for the sake of our democracy, really fight this hard. This is so dumb, too, because it's like, even even if you don't like append a forward-looking angle to it so that you can message it as like we're not looking backwards we're looking forwards and this is about like like the the the, the white house is full of the most low character people i've encountered in politics uh in 12 years of writing about it or whatever and they lied they lied they lied in ways that that have destroyed countless politicians uh, who have been less dishonest than them. And and now it's being proven. But the lies were told in the past. So, of course, you have to do some looking backwards. And the, and, and just because you're looking backwards, is like the does that mean like the, the public has any less interest in knowing that the president that was elected is was engaged in a potentially criminal conspiracy that he then covered up? I mean, you know what? What what if it turned out Trump murdered somebody during the campaign? Like, would they say, "Well, we we should," you know, that was in the past. As far as I know, he's not murdering anymore. Of, of course not. That's so dumb. Yeah, and also, I mean, this is sort of uh, an instance where if, if if one isn't careful, these types of debates over where the party should go now can ultimately become kind of counterproductive and destructive. I mean, if if you know, you, you often heard it sort of said that oh, the public doesn't care about the Russia stuff. Democrats need more of an economic message and so forth and so on. And that all may be true, but it's still important. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, like like Democrats were, were, were totally correct when they fought the Gorsuch nomination on the grounds that a president under FBI investigation, uh, you know, we should like shouldn't get a a Supreme Court pick. And then, like in a way they were just throwing up dirt. Like they, they weren't going to be able to stop Gorsuch and they knew that that line wasn't going to be effective, but they were, they were making the, the sort of higher elevation observation that a, a president under uh, like a, a cloud of illegitimacy, like we should think twice before we let him reshape the country in profound and lasting ways. And that's a way of saying we should look backwards before we let him change the future. And as this is all happening, he's going to try to kick 22 million people off of health insurance and Republicans in Congress are going to help him. And why not deploy this, you know, that, that before before Congress sends the president a bill that has no public support and that Republicans didn't run on because they ran on not cutting Medicaid, et cetera. Right. Um, before before you send this bill that breaks faith with the public in such a profound way, we should at least ask the question of whether a president with this level of doubt hovering over him, like, should be in a position to reshape society in such a profound way. So I, I don't understand why, like, they're they're too too far up their own asses. I think if they're worried that, like, about what the optics of of caring about this super important story. Are I I don't know, right? I agree, and it, it it really goes to the heart of 
whether whether our public officials are going to actually try to act as a check on on this really out of control executive when he's not just lying about relentlessly for months and months about his uh, his his campaign's efforts to collude with Russia, but also the we're talking about equally deep levels of bad faith here in the healthcare debate, and and. Right now, we're at a point where a bill with 17% support is getting moved by Republicans through a process which makes a, a complete mockery of, 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 of basic democratic processes. And so, altogether, it just amounts to such a complete middle finger to everything that you know, representative democracy is supposed to be about that you have to press the argument on all fronts. Yeah, I mean, I they have to do it. They have. I feel like there's this strong tendency, um, in the Democratic Party at least, th- to like let the prosecutors, let the lawyers sort out the investigative questions, the legal questions, the questions of like what conduct we we accept out of elected leaders as a as a society and as a you know a country of laws and what we let slide and not inject politics into that or not get yourself tarred with the politics of that. And so, you know, they were so thrilled when Robert Mueller was named special prosecutor because in some sense it let them off the hook for having to beat Republicans at the politics of having covered for Trump and uh, getting to the bottom of what Trump did. And that's just folly, right? Like, like A, who knows what Mueller will turn up? B, who knows how long it'll take him? C, you know, the the, the president has certain immunities that, that essentially can let him get away with all this, even if Robert Mueller uncovers, you know, the worst possible set of facts that you can imagine. They need to they need to there's a political angle to this fight, irrespective of whether there were laws broken um, or or whether there was just like, you know, information that needs to be unearthed. For the for you know for for somebody to put in in a report and and issue to the public, like there there there's a they they have to beat Republicans back on the idea that that a presidential candidate can use a foreign intelligence service as a as a kind of criminal super PAC, and then win the election with their help, and then have the ruling party in power cover up the crime like it's. That's not just a legal question. That that's a question of politics, and there's only one party that can fight that political fight. And it sounds to me, from what you're saying, that Democrats kind of want to sit that fight out, which is bonkers to me. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't want to overstate it, and I just want to you know make it clear that this is based on atmospherics and and some conversations more than anything else. And we have seen some really quite aggressive and effective um, oversight being. Um, being moved by Adam Schiff and I think Mark Warner too, and and Chuck Schumer is I think you know proving a little more responsive to pressure to be as aggressive as possible than maybe some people predicted. But you know overall I think we do have to worry and wonder whether Democrats are up to this fight. And some I mean we're talking about we're in truly unprecedented territory here with regard to the kind of shredding of, of basic norms. And I don't know that, you know, following this, the uh, following, you know, dueling rules is the thing to be doing here. Yeah. Do you have any sense for where this information, by the way, is coming from or any good guesses? 
like it's been sourced to White House advisors and I have, uh, you know, hunches or hypotheses or whatever. Um, but none, none that fully satisfy, satisfy me. I'm wondering if you have any. I find it really puzzling. I mean, some of the sourcing feels so murky to me that, you know, I it, I find that to be a bit frustrating. And, and have you noticed that sometimes the debate gets a little off the rails because people start to using various phrases such as White House advisor to as a jumping off point for all sorts of speculation when in Washington we all know that these terms are extremely uh, flexible, mm-hmm. right? I mean, people constantly call themselves uh, Democratic and, or Republican strategists. The term White House advisor could mean pretty much almost anything at this point. I, I find, I wonder whether we're not overdue for a conversation about how to source this stuff in a little bit more of a precise way for, for the sake of, of avoiding kind of these flights of speculation that result from kind of this very murky and, and indeterminate sourcing. I agree uh, as a general matter, um, especially because, you know, some of the best, most enjoyable to read stories about this White House, the Powell's Intrigue stories, are sourced, you know, 20 White House officials, but they're all backstabbing each other and everyone's got an agenda so you don't really know what's true or not. And you need to, you know, there, there's got to be a better way to communicate with readers and viewers, like who, uh, who's who's like more credible than whom, who's more senior than whom, how much stock should we put into this particular quote or claim based on, uh, you know, how much of an axe the source has to grind, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I definitely think that's true. In this particular story, it's a little different because you're talking about a very small universe of people could have come from, like unless... Unless Donald Trump Jr. is dumber than I thought, and he forwarded the email to more than just Paul Manafort and uh, and uh, Jared Kushner, then it almost seems like the the leak has to come from one of the two of them or from this lawyer, you know, uh, who who doesn't seem to be the source of it. Um, and so I I'm curious as to whether this is like. You know, if we're if we're entering a kind of Mexican standoff where Kushner's lawyers found this information in a document review and and pushed it out because they knew it was going to come out anyway, and that if they got it out first, it would implicate Don Jr. instead of Jared, and uh, which you know, however it came out, I'm glad it came out. But there's a story behind the story that I think it's it like is almost as important to to get at as the you know the question of what happened in the meeting itself. Yeah, and the other thing is that I think that, that that dynamic that you're talking about, in a broader sense, is probably going to end up resulting in lots more revelations down the road when Mueller starts knocking on all sorts of doors and bringing people in, and we're talking about people we don't even know exist maybe getting questioned, and, and at that point, the self-preservation instinct is going to start kicking in a lot more broadly, I think, and then you know, you're going to see a lot more leaking. Yeah. So a few hours before we started recording, Mitch McConnell announced that he intends to delay the Senate's August recess for a couple of weeks, ostensibly, I think, to squeeze his members into passing a health care bill. Um, do you think the decision he do you think he undertook this in in panic because of the Trump news? Or do you think it's all about this uh, struggle to pass a health care bill? I guess my sense is that they're really single-mindedly focused on the health care bill. I, you have to be kind of impressed by the fact that this latest news doesn't seem to have knocked them off stride, even in the slightest. But, you know, then again, their commitment to cutting taxes on the rich in order to, you know, 
in, as part of an effort to, to take health care from tens of millions of people is really just almost bottomless, yeah. right? And there's just nothing that can distract them from it, it seems. Yeah, although although the, the health care effort, at least, really does seem to be running aground. I mean, I don't want to knock on wood, obviously, like we've, we've, we've been back and forth on this three or four times now, but, um, you know, he has a he has a two vote margin. You know, Paul Ryan had a twenty vote margin or whatever, sixteen vote margin. Um, you know, so aside from him, McConnell stepping out and giving a press conference like Paul Ryan did to say Trump cares dead. Uh, what signs are you looking for that it actually is dead? Like, uh, and not, you know, not comatose, not you know, taking a nap, but but done for. To me, what, I, what I'm really paying attention to, I mean, I find the, the conservative side of this debate to be really opaque. I mean, you know, I, I find it almost impossible to believe that Ted Cruz and Mike Lee will actually stick a knife in this thing at the end of the day, although it's possible. I mean, but I'm really more focused on the moderate side. And, and what I really look for, I think, daily is that is is the degree to which these moderates are locking themselves into a broad moral critique of the Republican uh Mm-hmm. Right, and so they really seem to have um, dug themselves into a point where, on some, as you've written, as on some basic level, um, cutting health care spending on by hundreds of billions of dollars on poor people in order to finance an enormous tax cut for the very wealthiest is just wrong. Yeah. and I think they're pretty much dug into that position. And if they are, I just can't see how throwing $45 billion at opioid funding is enough to give them cover to get out of that hole. Yeah. I mean, I mean they just have to be, they would just have to resort to such extraordinary levels of dishonesty and, and, and rhetorical and moral chicanery to get there that it's hard to see it happening, but I would never, of course, underestimate their capacity for doing that. I mean, that. you saw what happened in the House with Fred Upton and the Tuesday group. You know, yeah. they, they, they put up a they put up a real show of saying this is nowhere near good enough and then caved with a, you know, with a tiny, uh, tiny, I don't know, concession from from the leadership uh, in the context of an, you know, an amendment that actually made the bill much worse. Um, so I, I, I don't put it past even, you know, Collins, Murkowski, the people who have been most critical of of the bill coming back. But you're right. They have box themselves in probably more and because they're not you know from gerrymandered districts but from um but from states representing whole states and many of them states that have large medicaid populations etc they i think are a little more constrained and they're a little more insulated from the immediate politics of the failure of the bill um so i guess i guess my 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 hope is that they're you know they have just less of an incentive to give Trump something just because he's desperate for a win and and give McConnell something just because Republicans have been, you know, uh, disingenuously uh, promising repeal for eight years without ever coming up with a plan to replace it. But uh, my, like for me, I'm looking for, you know, maybe Collins and Murkowski and one are apparently they're already talking to Democrats, uh, you know, privately. If the two of them plus one more Republican kind of form a gang of gang of six or whatever, uh, to, to debate a, a bill to stabilize Obamacare or to make, you know, modest changes to Obamacare, then I think Trump care is really dead. Um, but, but until, until then, I'm just, you know, as, as bad as it looks for McConnell now, there's just, uh, it, it's folly to, 
to assume that uh, that he won't be able to to put it back together. Yeah, I would agree with that. And you know, one funny thing about this notion of a gang, I mean, isn't that what Trump said he wanted? Didn't he say over and over that he, he wants he wants Democrats to come to the table to negotiate with him? Yeah, well, he's full of shit, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, he wants Democrats to come to the table and completely capitulate. Uh, and... Right. It's sort of amazing that the argument has gone, you know, without without even, like, any kind of effort to justify it. It's slid effortlessly from, you know, Democrats should come to the table to deal with me to if if Republicans can't do it, they should go for full repeal. Yeah. I mean, that's just such a ludicrous kind of transition. Yeah, or, and Mitch McConnell threatening his his conservatives by saying, if we if we can't pass this bill, I, I, I may have to negotiate with Democrats like it's some kind of horrifying, uh, horrifying threat. And also, I, I mean, as, as I've tried to say a few times, right, that just blows up one of their main arguments, right? I mean, they, yeah, they the, spent a year telling us right, that exactly. Obamacare was, quote-unquote, collapsing under it, its un, own uh, Unfixable, beyond repair, right. et cetera, et cetera. And, and turns out it would be simple. It would be the easiest thing in the world if they, if they actually cared about doing that, if that was their actual goal. It would be the easiest thing in the world for them to pass, um, you know, uh, modest funds to— stabilize the insurance marketplaces plus tax cuts to get Republicans to think it's worth it. Right, and not only that, but McConnell has explicitly now conceded that Republicans don't have the option of quote-unquote letting it collapse. He's essentially saying we will have to act. Yeah. Right? I mean, that alone essentially demolishes Trump's whole narrative along the lines of, you know, Democrats will have to come to the table once we just let it collapse. McConnell's actually literally saying no we can't let it collapse it would be nice if we could have one week of white house daily briefings and and capital leadership briefings that didn't have to be dominated by all these russian collusion developments because asking them to resolve these contradictions would be revealing in some sense yeah i mean it's just they they just don't even pretend to to care about even minimal there's just not even any effort to pretend that they have minimal standards of consistency or, or, or good faith. All right. Well, on that depressing note, I suppose I should let you go enjoy uh, the Garden State. Well, I will definitely enjoy it. This is really fun, Brian. Always good to be on with you. Yeah, we'll have you on again. Thanks, Sounds Greg. great, man. Okay. Bye. See ya. This episode of Primary Concerns was produced by Mickey Capper. You can find us on Twitter at prime underscore concerns, on newrepublic.com, and anywhere you download your podcasts. I'm Brian Boitler. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.